Good. What was it? Afternoon. Yeah, it is. Good. <laughs> Look. Good afternoon, everyone. This is your host Samaj McDowell. Welcome to another episode. I don't have much energy left in my system today. Um, neither does Wayne Wright. No, we're dragging. I'm. Go home no, after no, that because no. you. Aubrey, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm a little hungry, but I, I think I can manage. You, you good? Alright. How are you, Brian? And then this is the different Brian. This isn't the one. This isn't Brian Revis. This is not that one. This is the much more tolerable one. So this Brian. Is the, this is the Georgetown University Brian Jones right here. The one yeah, that one. Hey Brian, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me back. Uh, glad I at least got a little I, at least I'm tolerable. I guess I like that descriptor. Oh, yeah. We don't invite intolerable people no, we back. Don't do that. doesn't happen. Yeah. Absolutely not. Brian sneaks on. That's, yeah, he's just that's how he gets yeah. in. You know, he's not invited. But today, um, it's going to take about 45, 50 minutes to talk about two different, two different subjects. Uh, the first half is going to be on uh, terrorism, kind of making a definition for terrorism. Um, within that, have some discussions on real warfare, looking at some case studies or some examples, um, as well as at least starting a conversation on insurgencies and counterinsurgency. And then the second half, uh, we are going to have Brian kind of talk about um, the Pacific uh, region, but much more in particular, uh, the current diplomatic uh, security tour essentially that uh, China has started to engage in, um, primarily in not just the Solomon Islands um, and, and Samoa, but also Fiji and potentially Papua New Guinea. Uh, so with that, I'm going to be kind of very brief, laid back uh, conversation, but very, very informative. Um, so with that, we can kind of start off um, with an open discussion on kind of trying to define the action of terrorism. Um, a lot of people try to state, well, you know, the war on terror or um, how can you essentially declare war on a tactic that is terrorism? It would be like declaring a war on the usage of a kamikaze, which, I mean, how can you declare an entire war on a tactic rather than an extra ideology? Um, so before we continue, if anybody's open discussion, how would you define terrorism? Um, is it, a, is it just intended to strike fear? Is it a political, uh, statement? Um, what, what's the gist, the reasoning for the conducting of terrorism? I'll, you know, I'll just go off of chapter 18 of U.S. Law Code and just go from section uh, 2331 and terrorism basically defined in that section of the code is it's a violent act that is coordinated by a non-state actor and it's essentially the use of warfare to intimidate and coerce a civilian population as well as influence the policy of a government through coercion and of course it's illegal in the eyes of international law because even with a lot of different caveats today War can only re really be conducted by uh, responsible nation states, mm. and that's that's what makes it not necessarily warfare, 
what terrorists do, but terrorism. Robert? To, to kind of rebut off of what Wainwright's saying, there's also another view that's separate from the official terminology and definition uh, that people will not see a terrorist as a terrorist, but as a freedom fighter, I guess, maybe mm-hmm. for one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. Uh, and so it just brings us into this debate of there being, you know, terrorism kind of being a, a malleable word in a sense mm-hmm. depending on who you ask exactly because I could, I could go to the IRA and be like you guys are terrorists and be like oh no we're not we're we're, we're, we're just drunk Irish people. yeah, yeah, yeah hey. exactly <laughs> yeah, I can say that we've all been there so I'm, I'm supporting my people <laughs> but there's there's perception involved this. right yeah no, that, that's a that's a good point um, I mean we see that now where Interesting enough, groups such as like Al Qaeda, for example, considers America as a terrorist um, nation, um, or even in the words of like the Ayatollah Khomeini, where um, America is like this notion of the great Satan, um, where it's this psychological um, perspective of the act of terrorism, um, where in some instances terrorism is utilized as essentially a tactic in the notion of a struggle. Um, usually, historically speaking, when we look at a lot of these movements, um, the, the conducting of terrorism is utilized when an individual perceives as their la- they are in their last resort. So if we see, um, look at the example of the IRA, I mean, look at the examples of their treatment by the British um, throughout their history and essentially led up to the notions of utilizing terrorism, not only getting their political point across, but terrorism being utilized in the framework of an insurgency or or guerrilla warfare. So there's a book actually about waging insurgent warfare by Seth Jones that I highly do recommend um, if anyone is interested in learning more about exactly what is an insurgency, examples of insurgencies, insurgent warfare, guerrilla warfare, etc. Um, and how Seth um, defines terrorism is that terrorism, after all, is a tactic. Uh, while there is no broadly accepted definition, terrorism generally involves the use of politically motivated violence against non-combatants to cause intimidation or fear among a target audience. In addition, terrorist attacks are often episodic, while insurgency is protracted warfare. So, with a terrorist or a terrorist attack, um, what it means by episodic is that sometimes it's not consistent. It's not always every single day. There'll be one, let's say, on Monday, and then there'll be another on Thursday, or Saturday, or Sunday. Maybe in the same area, or maybe in a different area, maybe coordinated amongst different areas to heighten the severity of the impact as well as the the severity of the political message. Uh, we see that a lot in Afghanistan where, I mean, it was a few days ago, a SVB IED, which is a suicide vehicle bound and provides explosive device, um, was utilized um, in, one, in one city in Afghanistan while another one was detonated in a different village that killed about 36 people. Um, 
the notions of the use of terrorism as it states here is to strike fear. Uh, usually terrorism uh, is utilized as a tactic to bring uh, two things. One is to bring a sense of a conventional balance um, between a much more stronger force, what would be like the state, and perceived terrorists or insurgency group. Um, it's a way of balancing out conventional capabilities. But two, it's also to, as we like to utilize after 9-11, unfortunately in a grotesque way, it's to win the hearts and minds of the the population at large. Um, when we're looking at the the concepts of terrorism, um, we're looking at it as it's the state and it's the terrorist group that's essentially waging a war um, to gain the support of the overall population. Um, but Brian, yeah, what's your definition, Brian? Yeah, I mean, I kind of agree with uh, agree with the, a lot of the other def some of the definitions that Samaj and Rainwright here said about using violence targeted towards non-combatants as a form of influencing political and psychological mm -hmm. thinking. And one of the things that I find the most interesting in particularly Samaj's definition that you use it in particularly in a context of the insurgent warfare. I mean, that's what most of the world is used to, you mm -hmm. know, after all these years of fighting against insurgent groups and more unconventional groups like Al-Qaeda. Um, but one of the things that I've been kind of thinking about, you know, is we hear more about things like Buka in Ukraine or in what's happening in Myanmar now, in the use of, and particularly back in, you know, the Second World War, was the use of retaliatory killings. Mm -hmm. The use of violence against the public as a form of, of a conventional of power mm -hmm. as a form of controlling a population and using it as a way to preserve a certain political order, rather than you know, Al-Qaeda uses the indiscriminate violence to try and bring about some sort of political change in their favor. Mm -hmm. So, I'm not quite sure if I want to include, you know, those types of actions of retaliatory killings, retaliatory torture, mm -hmm. other things like that, and other sorts of forms of attacking innocent targets from a more stately power, for lack of a better word, mm -hmm. in the definition of terrorism. What do you guys think? I mean, that's a fair point. Um, the reason why I say that's a fair point is because uh, the usages of terrorism is so nuanced. It's the reason why there's never really a set definition on the concept of terrorism. Um, it's, as you brought up with World War II, the retaliatory killings, that essentially goes into one of the um, reasons for not just insurgency warfare, and um, but also terrorism. It's called punishment. Um, and sometimes one of the reasons to conduct punishment is not necessarily to kill off the entirety of the population that you're trying to win over, but it's essentially, it's kind of a strong arm tactic in a grotesque square where it's kind of like, uh, well, we're kind of making you choose between us or the government that we are demonstrating our violent grievances against. But, yeah, put it another way, it's terrorist groups, most of the time, I mean, it's not universal, they are attempting to undermine the legitimacy of the state. And what I mean by that is they're trying to diminish the state's abilities to provide goods and services to a population. 
So the population doesn't feel very safe, and then they turn to alternative forms of political government. And that's the goal. Terrorists are trying, they don't like the status quo, they're trying to shake it up the best way they know how. And that's usually by intimidation, bombings, mass killings, bribery, and so on and so forth. Right. But I'm, I'm, you didn't you didn't like Aubrey's definition of terrorism. You mentioned mine. And, <laughs> and Aubrey just sitting over here with a sad face, you know, like, come on. I liked yours, Aubrey. It was nice. It's okay. Yes. Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's an interesting um, conversation to have because it's, as, as we alluded to, it's purely subjective on what you view as terrorism and which side that you have uh, support on. Yeah. Oh, sorry, somebody. No, go ahead. But just, just to add on to... The, just what I was saying, you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, is that on occasion, you know, sometimes terrorist groups, they're not always defeated, and sometimes the government that they're targeting makes concessions to incorporate them as a, as a political block for the societies. Mm -hmm. And this is something that was actually on the table with Afghanistan, with the Taliban, at one point where the Afghan national government was trying to negotiate during that time, trying to make them a part of the Afghan government. Mm -hmm. uh, but as we saw, that didn't really right. follow through as we all thought it would. Right. Um, but I guess there's that, that time when there's still a terrorist group and then that kind of transitioned over to where they're a legitimate political block within a country or society, mm -hmm. uh, and so I guess it it just it just goes back to what I was saying: are are they are they a terrorist or are they are they do they have legitimate political grievances? Like what's 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 going on? And it just depends on who is perceiving and how they're perceiving how are they being perceived. Yeah, I think one of the main things is that the word terrorist gets chucked around all the time. Uh, particularly with, I mean, look at Syria with the Syrian Democratic Forces. You know, they're they're not a lot of those units are not targeting civilians, but they get branded as terrorists anyway. Mm -hmm. um, but again, then you have people that literally deliberately target civilians, like the Islamic State, like mm -hmm. Al Qaeda, like all these other organizations, and they're called, you know, to your point, freedom fighters. So I think that. In people's minds, there is it's technically more subjective and mm -hmm. um, less easy to pin down. But I think there can be a bit more of an objective reality towards you're targeting civilians for the sake of political change. I think the, you guys have nailed the head, nailed, hit the nail on the head there. Mm -hmm. You know where a dictator, autocratic regime, or something uses that sort of mass destruction, not necessarily directed destruction and brutality to shape an environment to keep the status quo to your mm -hmm. point they it's more of a changing force so I think I definitely agree that there's a major that that's a very important element of chucking around the word terrorist mm -hmm. left right and center and getting confused with freedom fighter all the time but I think there can be a bit more of an objective analysis of it I think a great example of this would be the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, they do conduct terrorism, um, but at the same time, they provided, or well, they still do, uh, provide community service programs. 
Um, they provide political representation. They provide assistance to a lot of underprivileged Egyptians. Um, but because of that, more of a lot of their social welfare programs essentially mask a lot of their terroristic operations. I mean, they're directly responsible for the assassination of Anwar Sadat. Um, they they've done like a massive amounts of just heinous types of, uh, of actions, even under uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser when they were first starting. Um, and one of their one of their leaders, ironically, Sayyid Qutb, um, is considered the founder of the the modern uh, jihad. Yeah, that's right. I was trying to remember that. <laughs> yeah, that's correct. So yeah. Um, wrote conveniently, similar to Hitler, wrote his book while he was in prison, um, and provided essentially with his book a platform to radicalize um, Muslims uh, against the Western world. After he spent a couple of years in the United States, and he stated something along the lines of, "It's interesting how America." attempts to portray itself as a very religious uh, society. It has so many churches, but it, nobody goes to them. Um, he also didn't like jazz, apparently. And I'm like... Well, only like 5% of the population in America likes jazz. I'm, like, come on now. I'm one of them, but like, come on. Like, nobody... Well, come on. I like I'm with him on it. I, I, you know. No, but he didn't like it because it was made by black people. That's literally why he said it. <laughs> he literally stated that. He was like, yeah, no. Nah, an Egyptian, not like an African American? I was no so way. confused. I was like, no wait a way. minute. <laughs> wait a minute. That's true, though. Like, there's a lot of Africans that come over here. I knew a heart surgeon from Nigeria. He was in a, in a small little country town in Michigan. Mm -hmm. And he's like, I don't understand these people. And I was like, who with people? And he just pointed a bunch of African Americans <laughs> walking down the street. It's a different culture. It's a, it's a different culture, unfortunately. It's yeah. one that was constructed. Um, during and after the transatlantic slave trade. But I mean, even looking in um, Nigeria, we talk about terrorism and insurgency, look at the Biafra. Um, Shout out to the Igbo. Th <laughs> thousands of people died um, in the 70s. Yeah, um, that was a weird war too. It, Strange. So many people changed sides. I think Israel at one point was supporting. They, they were. They were. They were in peace talks in the floor. I didn't understand what was going on. Nobody knew at that point. Yeah. There was like, I, I need to, I need to pick a side. Well, I, we're getting a little bit off track. But no, I wanted to talk about that because so when we're talking about terrorism, you have to talk about the over the overarching uh, conversation of an insurgency. Um, now, not all times the conducting of terrorism means an impending or a starting insurgency. I mean, if you look at domestic terrorism, people talk about mass shooters. Um, They're they, trying to shake stuff up, not put something in its place. Precisely. Right. Um, so when you consider something as a domestic terrorist, especially when you look at the legal frameworks mm -hmm. here in the United States, calling somebody a terrorist legally in this nation comes with some heavy, heavy um, implications. Um, but unfortunately, when we utilize the word uh, terrorism, as Brian, you brought up, you kind of unfortunately water down the true existence of its nature. Um, it's an absolutely grotesque uh, tactic utilized for political motives in some cases. But in this notion of, of terrorism, maybe an insurgency, I want to go back to what Seth Jones stated in his book. Um, he brought up Afghanistan, brought up the, the Biafra, and um, even the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, Seth states that insurgency can be understood as a process of alternative state building. 
groups often tax the populations in areas that they control. So the Taliban did that, ISIS did that, um, Hezbollah did that, um, and they're part of the political structure. They legally now can do that. Um, Hamas did that, Muslim Brotherhood did that, well, they still do. Um, established justice systems, they all did that as well. I mean, ISIS was throwing suspected gay people off roofs. Um, they were also decapitating um, people in squares just as a, you know, this is the new state that we're carving within a state um, and attempts to provide other services. So whether that's taxes, building infrastructure, um, councils, um, etc. Um, Seth goes on to say that insurgents essentially integrate politics into virtually every aspect of their campaign. Uh, they have to establish a political vanguard at the beginning of the of the insurgency that kind of goes back to even what Mao Zedong was talking about with guerrilla warfare and protractor warfare. Um, closely integrating security and political resources to defeat the government on the battlefield through their choice of strategies. So uh, when we look at ISIS, um, when they were when they first started to conduct terrorism, which then eventually led to the surge, if I remember correctly, and then they declared themselves as the Islamic State and started the, um, the insurgency war across the Levant. Um, they established their political arm. Um, first, they did the propaganda, the recruitments. They um, created the terrorism um, handbooks. Um, they kind of formulated their grand strategies. Um, they minimized uh, the tactics into particular uh, regions one step at a time, but they were very careful on what tactics they utilized, whether that was suicide attacks, uh, whether that was mass graves, um, that whether that was implementing quote-unquote border checks and to, trying to figure out if you were Sunni or Shia and if you're lying, we have to answer these questions. If you found out to be lying, then they killed you on the spot. Um, but also the reason for minimizing tactics, and this will go with the episodic um, nature of terrorism, is that you want to undermine. You don't want to undermine the political goals and popular support. If you do too much terrorism, then the population will start to move against you. Mm -hmm. Okay, you're you're killing. You're supposed to be trying to win us over. You're killing too many of us. Um, that was one of the reasons why why literally Al Qaeda, Osama bin Laden, sent a letter to Zarqawi, and was like, "Can you chill? Like you're killing more Muslims than America. Like what are you doing?" <laughs> And Zarqawi told him, well, one, I don't listen to you anymore. Like, you are literally fake, essentially. Like, I'm the true leader of this uh, Islamic State movement. And so he removed his declaration of fealty to Osama bin Laden and then established um, the Islamic State out of Al-Qaeda. Um, Indeed, the, they called the land between two rivers, um, the Tigris and the Euphrates. Um, we, they also... Terrorism, but also even insurgencies, they utilize information operations that maximize the political support. So whether that's right-wing, uh, here in America, right-wing terrorists, or um, not even just terrorists, but just right-wing um, organizations, or even left-wing organizations, where they try to utilize the information space and social media, uh, propaganda recruitment, um, as well as uh, much more targeted operations to maximize their political support for their ongoing or potential operations, or they undermine the political support for the government. So with terrorism, that's one of the main reasons why you will conduct terrorism. It would show to people that the government cannot protect you. Uh, you should provide, you should allow us to provide you the protection. That's the only way for this terrorism to stop. 
Um, unfortunately, we see in Afghanistan. It's not the case. Now, granted, the interesting case in Afghanistan is that the Taliban is fighting their own counterinsurgency from other militia groups in northern Afghanistan. So, um, but that's, I just wanted to touch on something real quick. You've kind of danced around, but you got to look at what a terrorist group is trying to achieve in the end. Right. So it's their political, it's their political goal of alternative state building. Well, that's well, some of them are trying to build what a lot of people call a state. So like the caliphate ISIS was trying to build, Mm -hmm. it checked a lot of the boxes. It was a telluric area. It was, it was, it had borders. Mm -hmm. It had a government, legitimate government, that tried to monopolize the use of warfare within its borders. Mm-hmm. Taliban with Afghanistan, that's another example. They were trying to create their own state. Mm-hmm. And other places say, or other people say the Unabomber or, well, the Unabomber is the biggest one that comes to mind. Well, of course, he didn't want to create a state. He just mm-hmm. wanted to burn it down and let the trees grow and and return to nature type of deal. So there was no real political society he was trying to build. You've got to look at what a terrorist is trying to do in the end. And then you can kind of really decide, well, one, how we should address it. Mm-hmm. And then two, just what means will they likely use to get to that end. And then you can kind of work off that. Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, and there's a few parts to that. First off, it's a very interesting example of Unabomber. You know, a lot of these groups are, you know, political objective, to your point, build some sort of political framework for their own, for power. Um, Unabomber was more an anarcho-terrorist, where his objective, his political objective was not a state, but rather anarchy. And the anarchists were the first terrorists. You look back yes, at the 1900s, oh boy, they were assassinating <laughs> a lot. Of, like, we, everyone got real... Concerned about Islamic terrorism, and then you look at what the anarchists were doing with at the 1900s. They killed US, the czar. <laughs> they killed a U.S. president. They killed a U. Oh yes, now you, that's they but, killed but the I'm czar. saying, like, if you look at it, anarchists are probably the most the most dangerous because, like, like I guess I'm going to bring up a, a pop culture. Reference. They just want to see the world burn, right? That's what they want to do. Yeah. They want to see what happens when you go back to what Locke would call state of nature. And what will come from that? Just wholesale, just pure nothing. Yeah, and one of the main things about it is the volatility of these mm-hmm. types of things. Because their objectives, I mean, e- even in a regular state, the objectives shift. The personalities get involved and mixed in. But generally, you know, in a more s- traditional state organization, there's, you know, a hierarchy, there's an organization. Sometimes there's laws that people actually, mm-hmm. you know, Kind of follow, There's a tax like, system. Know, There's exactly. all these different things. Yes. Like, I mean, to try and make sense of what anarchists would call a census world. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, particularly in some of these other structured things, like you brought up those Arpawi example with Bin Laden. I mean, someone just going off on their own reservation and splintering off in their own group, that happens all the time in a lot of these organizations because they're so decentralized, because there's so many different factors getting mm-hmm. involved. You know, for more, that's. For more state-organized things, that's like borderline unheard of. Mm-hmm. Like, imagine if the the general involved in operating the war in Ukraine goes nuts. Putin calls him, says, "Please stop," and he just says, "No, I'm making my own state in Ukraine now." Like that, that would be borderline unheard of mm-hmm. because, and that that's one of the things that, particularly in the early days of the counterinsurgency, that a lot of U.S. thinkers kind of struggle with mm-hmm. was just how dynamic and just how quickly allegiance shifted 
in this sort of irregular, asymmetric, non-structured organization. Now, now, just to clarify, which insurgency were you talking about? Frankly, but, frankly both, but the, particularly in Iraq, when things started disintegrating quickly, mm-hmm. that's, that's where... Well, know, this is what happens when you decide to quote-unquote debathify yeah. a nation. Yeah, you take everyone who has <laughs> any political experience, and then you try and put... Who's it, Ahmad Shalabi in their place? Yes. Someone, some, some academic who no one in Iraq knew who he was, and Shalabi was supposed to be the next president. And, and he gets there, and, and every Iraqi's like, who? You know, it's like, this man? who is Ahmad Shalabi? And then you tell, you, yeah. you literally remove the the Iraqi army, who all militarily trained, and you're like, oh, you're not an army anymore, but you can keep your weapons. Oh, like, and even worse, the U.S. Army said, you know, you can, you can keep an AK-47 in your house. You can go home. You're not going to be part of the army, but you you are more than welcome to keep an AK-style rifle in your house for. I think they said it was home defense. I can't home remember exactly. Some of the lines of home defense. Yes. So and, and then you think, well, that's not. You're, one, you're not thinking clearly. If you're trying to fight a counterinsurgency and you're trying to combat it, maybe arming a bunch of unsatisfied formal former soldiers is not the way to go about it. And that's what I'm saying. You have it's to. Off. You have to look. At what end these terrorist groups are trying right. to achieve, and to do that, you have to read and listen to what they write and say. You do. There's no other way to do it because he's say what you want about Osama bin Laden. He was honest about what he wanted to do. He was like, you know, I'm. Go ahead. I'll read. Oh no, no, I, I, because I. Go ahead. Keep continue. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah, no, I. Osama bin Laden. He he was very honest about what he wanted to do. He said, "Look, I'm the head of a small organization on my own." I'm not going to do much against the power of the United States. However, what I can do is light a spark in a whole bunch of tinder, and hopefully that will, this conflagration will encapsulate the Arab and Muslim world and make them start resisting tyranny, essentially, from pagans and Christians and everything mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. So that was what he said, and we and we didn't, the only person who took him seriously to my recollection is a guy named Michael Schuyer, who was... He was the CIA he head of the Al-Qaeda unit, I think until 1999, and then he was out of government because he couldn't get along with anybody. But he was right. Like He, he was he, right. Yes, he understood Osama bin Laden as Osama bin Laden understood himself, and he was punished by the U.S. government for it, and for being a, a, a bastard. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was a little bit of a bastard. I'm sorry. I like you, Michael Schuyer, if you're listening, but <laughs> you did not play well with him. <laughs> Go ahead, Aubrey. Really, that's fair. That's fair. I just wanted to add on. I just think it's interesting now in hindsight uh, because recently the, the USIC has been releasing a lot of, you know, a lot of correspondences. Uh, some of the videos. That declassification shit is no joke. Yeah, it is. It yeah. is. It is. And there's been one academic on on Bin Laden who's been looking at all of his correspondence, his letters, mm-hmm. his diaries. He's doing the right thing? Mm-hmm. I will say this, I will say this though, and this is my personal methodology, if you're looking at what a public figure is saying, you should look at their policies first and their speeches, right? Because those are going to either either people in power or people you want to convince as opposed to personal correspondence. Like that's a good secondary reference for providing context. Right. But you, you don't want to base policy off of private correspondence. That, that's my only I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Oh no 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 it's it's fine. I, and I get what you what you mean. Uh, but the little historian in me, uh, I just I always like the, the big story of it. Yeah <laughs> I always like, some little is just, just a little just a little 
little little historian in me. Um, I just I think it's just interesting that in hindsight now that we have all these all these papers and you can you can see the disconnect between how the United States was calculating Al Qaeda at the time and then what Bin Laden actually got in his organization right after 9-11. Mm-hmm. And I think it just goes back to the Wainwright's point uh, that, that he mentioned. Um, and now, is there, forgive me, is, is it the CIA who's declassifying this stuff or is it the U.S. government? Like, I'm, because I would, if you have the link to all this stuff regarding Al Qaeda and Osama Bin Laden, I mean, Find it and then give it a shout out on Spotify. I'm sure a lot of people would like to yeah, try and understand terrorists as they understand themselves, as opposed to a bunch of dumb yeah. professionals like ourselves. Definitely. Can I just shout out the book? Go yeah. ahead. So it's called The Bin Laden Papers How the Abbottabad Raid Revealed the Truth About Al Qaeda, Its Leaders, and Its Family. It's by Dr. Nellie Mahmoud. And it just, I, she just published it this year. And it's a book that I'm looking about picking up here soon because I just like sifting through it. And, She's trying to get into the mind of the world's most wanted terrorist at one point. <laughs> no, I, that's that's wonderful. Yeah, no, I'll take a look at that book myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but just to finish, I, there's a lot we could go into here, but just yeah, for the sake of time, I, I do want to end on this. What are some potential policies that state governments can adopt to kind of mitigate the threat of terrorism to themselves? Well, the number one thing that they're going to have to do is really look at and understand the possible socioeconomic sources that produces terrorists. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the times, uh, terrorists—it's not all the time—but um, there's always key. There are there are always some key indicators um, in society, or even on an individual level, when an individual starts to get to that point mm-hmm. of terrorism, uh, whether that is, you know, losing a job and can't get one anymore top of um, financial it's like chronic financial troubles or feeling that they are politically represented or mm-hmm. feeling that you know, their family lives crumbling and they, they just don't have any any out any uh, any outlets or it could literally be a institutional systemic problem where it could be chronic uh, policy paralysis that's not providing any type of um, I don't know, efficient or effective policy recommendations or outcomes um, that are generally benefiting um, society at large. Uh, so what nations would have to do, and it, I know it's very difficult to do it, especially when we talk about self-interest and political interest, um, it's to look at the society, um, both in the macro and micro um, points of view and tears from an unbiased, non-politically um, aligned lens and look at the, the, the true conditions of the people. Um, terrorists only are able to garner support if they see that their sense of um, internal afflictions and troubles is one that's chronic throughout a percentage of society. So just to clarify what you said, so policymakers, they need to eliminate the worst excesses of negative government, corruption, abuses, and that stuff, and try and avoid making political decisions which generate grievances both inside the country and without. Correct. Okay. 
What do you got, Brian? Yeah, I think that's you. You really got that point straight down there. And I think the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan are the best possible case studies for that. I mean, particularly when seeing U.S. versus any of those insurgent groups in there, be it Al Qaeda, be it the Islamic State, any of the branches, Taliban. You know, on the field, battle by battle, raid by raid, the U.S. would overwhelmingly win those. I mean, just the entire leadership chain was repeatedly killed. Massive amounts of revenue lost, massive amounts of weapons destroyed, just sheer obliteration. Like, you know, the, the, the numbers of enemy fighters killed was enormous. You know, you can kill all those groups and kill all those leaders. Kill the amount problem all over. Yeah, right. and then exactly, you you get get rid of that unit, get rid of that cell, get rid of that leader, and then to your point, if those socioeconomic problems are still there, another one just hops right back in its place. And until you kill those underlying problems that keep feeding people into that organization, uh, they'll just keep coming back until eventually you. The, the superior force leaves, in which case they can go take over the country again, which happened in almost in Iraq, and as we saw, very much happened in Afghanistan. Yeah, and another policy, and we've been talking about it, you need to understand your opponent as they understand themselves. What that means on a practical level is you need to look at the data and information in front of you and have your intelligence services produce intelligence that is will both describe the, the ends mm -hmm. which terrorists are actually working towards and then how this end will adversely impact you, the national security of the United States and then also a couple ways both orthodox and unorthodox where you can mitigate these problems. And that's that's been the biggest issue. Like the IC, they they have not been good about pitching this product because that's what they do. They're pitchmen. They don't they have not been good about pitching their products, which are based off of, of primary sources by terrorists, to policymakers. They've struggled, and that's something that needs to be fixed. My final remark before we move to the mm -hmm. uh, Pacific is that this also wouldn't call for advisors and staffers to actually grow a backbone and tell their politicians both what they want to hear, but also what they don't want to hear. Mm -hmm. And that means the truth. It means, and this also goes across um, intelligence agencies as well. Don't provide me a debrief where it only has cherry-picked information regarding things or situations that I want to hear and what I want to see. You're only providing me either between 25 to 50% of the actual truth. Mm -hmm. Growing up, my mom always told me, the truth always has three sides. What you say, what I say, what actually happened. Mm -hmm. So if you only providing me an intelligence debrief, or an intelligence bluff, which is a bottom line up front report, and you're only giving me information regarding what you know that I want to hear, or is it really intelligence? No. In my eyes and in my criteria, no, it's not. Staffers dealing with legislatures also need to grow some confidence, need to grow a backbone, and they need to tell they're politicians. They need to tell special politicians that deal with certain committees that have to deal with budget appropriations or defense, etc. that, hey, here is the good, the bad, the ugly, the damn right nasty and grotesque. Mm -hmm. 
Here are the policies. Here are the recommendations. Some of these you're not going to like, but you need to know so that you can make the best decision. It should not always come down to, oh, uh, my next election is in two years, or my next election is in six years, or the next presidential election is in four years. That shouldn't matter. What should matter is that staffers are hired for a reason. Advisors are hired for a reason. You do intelligence for a reason. Do not give me best case probability, low case probability, simply because it fits an overall particular national security agenda that may or may not be flawed in itself or not realistic. Mm -hmm. Dealing with terrorism insurgencies, especially handling the socioeconomic reasons for it, is going to get nasty and it's going to take time. We have to get away from the mentality of short-term successes. We have to redefine what it means to be victorious again, which we have not done since World War II. Mm -hmm. Once that happens, then... I guarantee you, and that's a big guarantee that I'm willing to give, but I'm willing to guarantee that once staffers, once advisors, and once individuals in the intelligence community begin to not only grow a backbone when it comes to their reportings, we will be able to see some significant changes for the better. And from there, that's how I'm going to end the first part, and then we can move on over. Since Brian wanted to talk about the Solomon Islands, right? Since Solomon we already Island, talked about it on Floyd, Eddie, et cetera. Go ahead, Brian. The floor is yours. Yeah. So this is just an update. This is just a bit of an update to the previous discussion. Um, it's the fact that you know the pact, the security pact that was extended to the Solomon Islands, is now coming into more countries in the South Pacific. There's the foreign minister is currently visiting seven countries in the South Pacific. They are Solomon Islands, Kiribati, please excuse me if I mess up any of these pronunciations, Samoa, Fiji, Tonga, Vanuatu, and Papua New Guinea. Um, he's going to all of these countries to pitch in for a common development vision, which the details is, are very, very scarce as to what that actually means, what's the trade implications, the security implications, very much kept under wraps in a very traditional Chinese fashion. It's mm -hmm. kind of the general doctrine to keep those sorts of things at the most unbelievably secret as humanly possible. We have a few leaks to get an idea of what it is, but again, it's kind of remains a mystery. But the point, the main point here is that China is spreading its wings. China is spreading its influence to a very geopolitically critical region and stepping out into the world in a previously unmatched manner. That's this, these islands. They're in the second island chain? Or the second and third. Second and third. Kiribati, I mean, Kiribati is massive. Absolutely massive. It's about the size of, in terms of water and island, in their exclusive economic zone, it's about as wide as from Brazil to Ecuador. Oh, wow. Yeah. Oof. So, I mean, but that makes sense as to, I know, uh, especially when she uh, took over in 2012, um, it was kind of believed that the, China's goal has always been to push America. Um, behind the third island chain, um, so essentially the Hawaiian back. Mm -hmm. um, 
and that you know, their prioritization of anti-area um, access denial um, operations and infrastructure uh, has definitely played a very crucial um, assistance to their positioning. And not, I mean, even inside China Sea, a few days ago, China tested a submarine launch ballistic missile and only gave commercial airliners minutes notice as they launched it. Excuse me? <laughs> like, oh, what? I'm sorry. Like, are, are there not protocols that you have to inform commercial airliners that, hey, yeah, so I'm about to launch a big-ass ballistic missile from a, a submerged submarine. You may want to clear the area. None was given until they were literally launching the missile. And this is why... Just using that as an example, just talk about with that missile launch. Stuff China does stuff like this all the time. They have a habit of making themselves nuisances in weird ways to a lot of different countries at the same time. And that's why I'm saying their involvement in Southeast Asia and in Oceania, as you described it, Brian, is not as much of a threat to U.S. interests as people in the Army and the intelligence agencies might think. It's not. It's 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 a it's an opportunity for China to fuck up even more, and they're very good at fucking up. No, I'm serious. No, it's true. No, 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 no. no, no. That's no, true. No, and, and I talked about it briefly with uh, Hazen Moy, who was on uh, last week, and he was talking about Indonesia and why relations between Indonesia and China are so bad. It's because the Indonesians hate the Chinese. They hate they've hated the Chinese traders there forever. The Chinese for traders have taken advantage of the Malay peoples and every other people in that region. And the People's Republic of China has kept that up. They've just industrialized the process and increased the number of Chinese there. So, so the more Chinese penetration into Oceania and Southeast Asia there is, the better chance the United States and Australia have is to say, well, okay, you might not like us, but we're a lot better than the Chinese, so you can get a better deal over here. And I, and I'll, I don't want to get on my soapbox, but I will mention this again. In terms of economic aid... Australia and the United States alone, they do more aid to that part of the, of the world than anyone else, including China. In terms of grants, in terms of um, uh, just, just random aid for weird stuff like COVID, I mean, we do a lot more there than China does. Mm -hmm. So we still have a lot of economic pull, even though China has increased. There's one key exception to that, and this is kind of the more concerning part to me, in that, you know, the, the standard playbook since, like, the 90s has been... It, particularly with the IMF, basically the entire Western world, Japan, mm -hmm. Korea, and South Korea, the rules have been, we will provide you aid, we will provide you money, and we will provide you additional access, provided you follow a few basic human yes, rights. Yes, yes. I know? mentioned that on base. Yeah, exactly. It's very true. And, you know, that's, that's a pretty reasonable request. Don't be a, you know, too terrible of a dictator. It's not even don't be a dictator. It's too terrible of a dictator, and we'll still trade with you. Um... China has no such restrictions. That's how it's, and it has no qualms about messing with bribes, no qualms about environmental concerns, no qualms about putting down protesters or anything like that. So that's why they're a much, and you know, anyone where the Western world would balk and pull their, pull their financials out like immediately, they would be, the Chinese step in to fill that vacuum. And that's, that's why, you know, I'm sure you talked about this in the Solomon Islands one, in that 
the current premier, the, the current prime minister there is considering things like suspending elections, considering things about, you know, using additional force to confront protesters. Mm -hmm. And that would result in significant economic backlash from the rest of the world. You know, we've seen it with Ukraine, we've seen it with other human rights violated countries. So, and the it's a bit more of a bargain between a burgeoning autocrat and the dominant autocratic power. You get the Chinese, like you said, they get the best possible natural resource access in A2AD mm -hmm. landing zones, other stage points for additional operations. In exchange, the burgeoning autocrat gets all the money and firepower they need for anything that they want to do. Yes, but in the end, that's if the autocrat gets the firepower and foreign influence that it wants or he wants or whatever, there's still the issue of looking at how China leverages economic power. And I haven't mentioned this on the podcast before, but I always look to Angola as an example of this. So China, from the 80s onwards, done a bunch of deals with Angola where they will bring companies to Angola, but they will also bring Chinese workers to Angola to work those projects. Whenever possible, China goes out of its way not to train local talent. Mm -hmm. And I don't see this pattern changing with Papua New Guinea, who, forgive me, they are even more primitive in a lot of ways than a lot of the areas China's gone. China's not going to invest in growing a middle class or decreasing unemployment in Oceania and Southeast Asia. They're going to exacerbate the problem. No, no, because I tried to, coincidentally, I think it was last year or two years ago, um, I tried to get a, a paper uh, published on the realities of China's um, operations. They shut them down. No, they literally <laughs> was oh, like, they? we're not going to publish this. Oh, wow. Um, Who's in this thing? Oh, so, you know, reportings from both Congress and the FBI about China's actual economic and industrial espionage actions mm -hmm. in the United States, mm -hmm. um, including the, um, the Confucius Institute. Um, and the China one-to-one -one program at George Mason University and how it's all a scheme in order to steal um, intellectual property um, as well as uh, cultural espionage and intelligence operations. Um, since in those those type of programs, like the China one-to-one program, you'll go, a Chinese person will do two years of university um, in China, one in the United States, and then finish um, their university uh, or their degree program in China, mm -hmm. but when they go back to China, they go through a re-education process to essentially make sure that any type of influences from America is not um, impacting said uh, Chinese uh, citizen once he goes back to the People's Republic of China. But also, I talked about in that paper, essentially, that uh, what China does, as you brought up in Golan, is simply is reminding me, I mean, they do the same thing in the Congo, where basically... Where the United States may provide investments and assistance in the development of a middle class, of a workforce, of a, a new um, intelligentsia of, mm -hmm. of a nation. What China does is essentially they invest in the actual infrastructure, um, the constructing of the infrastructure as well as the natural resources that they want. Mm -hmm. they, don't, they don't train a native um, workforce to work on these operations or the companies they may hire a few but the actual management the administration 
the actual lucrative uh, jobs in order to make sure that the minings are done, the ports are done, the rails are done, etc. Those are all done by Chinese. Um, it's gotten to the point where they're actually like, you want to talk about colonizers. Like, no, it's literally. Looking, I call yeah. it um, uh, reverse mercantilism. Yeah. So basically what it is with um, traditional mercantilism is that essentially you send the military first to acquire and then you go for the economic benefits. What China is doing is they're obtaining the economic benefits first and then if there's any type of instability or destabilization, they'll send the military. So then that way it's like, okay, well now I have a reason to actually beef up uh, our military modernization, send a frigate or two. It makes no it makes perfect sense as to why now all of a sudden their logistical facility in Djibouti um, is able to um, house and maintain the frigates that they have deployed in the area for account for anti piracy. But in, in the the colony thing that we just talked about, I mean it's got implications even now. So say for instance, Brian that China has ports and all this stuff all over the world. Kind of like, I don't know, the British Empire did back in you know, the, the, the 1900s, right? Yeah. The problem with having ports all over the world is you have to be able to defend that, and that, in turn, to defend these, these vast, far-flung geographic areas, you have to break the principle of economy of force. You have to spread your military forces around, or say, look, if conflict breaks out, I'm just going to lose this. Mm-hmm. And that, like that's what the, that's what happened to the British in World War II. They're like, ah, we'll lose Singapore, it'll be fine. We'll lose we'll lose Malaya. We'll, the only thing we can't lose is India, right? But everything else, like they they were like, we'll lose it. But they still had to station forces all over the world, and in turn, that really hampered their ability to fight another great power. And that's China's big problem. If they wanted to expand, they have to do it very prudently and. China's not good about keeping a low profile and not acting like a colonizing bull. Right. They're just not good at it. I mean, if you look at China's history for the past 600 years, um, you literally see... They're like, not good about spanning overseas. No, they don't do that. They, that's don't do not, that. they don't have a framework to do it. They're making this as they go along. Yeah, and that's that's one of the main points in that. that you know, It's part of, you know, it's definitely more of a political push rather than a more pragmatic military-based one, mm-hmm. you know? There's the ambition now of a global hegemon here. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to not just achieve the standard that they believe they lost mm-hmm. in the century humiliation that's been in almost all of Xi Jinping's speeches. Mm-hmm. You know, they want to grow, and they're adopting a lot of uh, American model mm-hmm. abilities, like mm-hmm. splitting their military into brigade combat teams. Mm-hmm. You know, to essentially assist with that sort of for deployed capability, mm-hmm. you know, they're slowly working up to that capability, you know, mm-hmm. to your point, they're sort of doing it backwards. Usually you think they build up that capability, then they go in, but, they you know, they're kind of expanding, you know, economically and socially and mm-hmm. politically first, before then the actual hardball military, hard power capabilities come first. And they're, it's a bit of a gamble, because right. to your point, if some, something happens, you know, they're they'd be left out gun, but they're assuming that, you know, a lot of their their rivals are for the most part democracies. Right. And they're assuming that it would take them years or if not decades to finally get up to a point where they'd be willing to act militarily confront them, mm-hmm. by which point they would the Chinese would also be ready to defend. Well so. we've seen throughout history also when it comes to the declaring of uh, of war and sustaining war, democracies tend to be able to um, 
prolong their efforts uh, during the duration of war than most authoritarian nations. Um, it's simply just because of the elasticity of the institutions and popular support, etc. Um, when it comes to China, as we already stated, China doesn't really have a history of beyond, well, they don't have one, of beyond East Asia colonization. Yeah, they were large traders, uh, maritime traders, um, but there's a difference between being able to create large, let's say, merchant fleet groups since the Roman Empire versus being able to construct large maritime naval fleets for colonization on the outside world. Um, actually waging wars and winning wars, um, gaining that experience. You can create the greatest military structure on paper and implement it within institutions, but if it's never been battle-hardened, mm -hmm. is it really effective? No, it's not. Um, the last war China had was Vietnam. They still technically lost. They technically <laughs> lost, they became it was a victory. But, um, but even in that sense, uh, China's the last time China had a direct confrontation with America militarily was the Korean War, and that did not that did not end well with them. Uh, they've had over five hundred so thousand. Um, PLA soldiers killed primarily due to U.S. Air Force um, strikes. It's this notion of China, as you stated, China is essentially experimenting as they go. Uh, unfortunately, the structure that the um, Xi, that Xi Jinping appealed in the the, the Communist Party has in place is much more restraining, much more restrictive on their actual potential um, than they realize. They think they've created something great. Um, the, the CCP believes that you know it's their destiny to quote unquote lead the world, even though they proclaim that that's not what they want to do, but it is. Um, it's something that China also understands that to remove the United States will not be easy and it won't be without most likely some sort of direct confrontation. And then if it does happen, if somehow the U.S. is removed through direct confrontation, does China have the financial ability to take over all the, say, commitments with international organizations? No, no it does not. And don't. Budgeting-wise, it doesn't make sense. But again, it Chinese policymakers are not either thinking about this or they don't care. They're like, well, we'll worry about it when it gets here. Right. And that's we're going to campaign thing. opportunistically. So that's their thing. Yeah. They only think about things in 10, 20, 30 year trajectory. Mm -hmm. So they're like, okay, well, we're not going to worry about it this decade, but we'll work about it um, 15 years from now. But, you know, that mandate of heaven is real. <laughs> it's, uh, I'm telling you, you laugh now, but look, like I said, over the past 600 years, looking at China, China's direct success especially externally has everything to do essentially with their monetary policy domestically if the, the not if the very moment that the chinese people feel that their government is not providing one of three core things economic stability uh, economic stability security mm -hmm. um and essentially general welfare they will demonstrate their displeasure, and they've done it before, and they have no problem doing it again. 
Uh, a lot of people say that the CCP structure is very unique. It's not. They did not. The CCP under Mao did not remove the dynastic structures of the Chinese kingdom or empire. It didn't. It literally just put communists on it. Um, the mandate of heaven, essentially, of those who don't know, is that essentially that once the Chinese government is deemed no longer suitable um, for the general conditions of the Chinese people, then that government is no longer um, capable of reigning, therefore must be re replaced, essentially. I won't say removed, because that gives implications, but rather replaced. Um, Xi Jinping, um, and I read this one on Economist, Xi Jinping is literally the sole reason that China's economy, political structure, and even its internal military stability is weak and fragile. It's going to continue that way. Unfortunately, the CCP, their elites, are not, they don't see it either because of their own ignorance and arrogance or they're too scared to say something about it. Um, Xi Jinping has demonstrated he has no problem killing Chinese billionaires. Um, and if you're not a billionaire, what, if he's willing to kill a billionaire, what makes you think that he won't have Chinese security knocking on your door? Um, but I'm going to leave it there. We've been talking for an hour. Um, definitely, we want to keep updated on that on the, the Chinese maneuverings in Oceania, um, as that is strategically important. Um, but yeah, I mean, how are you feeling, Aubrey? Feeling good. Feeling I'm good. not as well read on China as I really want to be, but I think you guys did a killer job. Oh, thank you. What about you, Wayne? Right, you feeling good? I am. No, this is it was informative, concise, succinct. It was beautiful. How you feeling, Brian? Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. All right, well, I'm going to end it here uh, with that. Much love. Peace.